All right, you guys, we're in 1 Samuel 24. I hope you'll turn up your Bible to that chapter, and we'll look forward to studying that a little bit tonight. Hope you're all as well with you and yours. Glad you're here in this class tonight. We don't have any big Yankees fans. We don't have any big Yankees fans in here, do we? You're a Dodgers fan. I'm a Dodgers fan, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, here's what we're doing in this class, in case you're new to the class. Most of you, the vast majority of you know, know what, we're, what we're doing as far as uh, studying the first Samuel, but just in case we have a couple who don't, just a, just a quick intro. Okay, here we are. We're in the life of David, but that's, we could be in a lot of different places there's a lot about David, you know? I mean, a big part of 1 Samuel is about David, a lot of 2 Samuel is about David. And so, it, the Bible actually talks about him quite a bit. We're at the point prior to his becoming king in 1 Samuel 24. In fact, the whole book of 1 Samuel is prior to his becoming king. He doesn't become king until right at the beginning of 2 Samuel 1. So, we're in an interesting time with David. This is a time when he wrote a lot of the Psalms. He wrote about half the Psalms, 150 Psalms. He wrote, you know, give or take half of them. Don't know for sure. But. And of the ones that he wrote, say he wrote 75 or so, of the ones, of the 75 or so that he wrote, quite a few of them, a substantial number of them were written during this time we're in right now, which is a difficult time in his life. And if you've read the Psalms lately, if you've read the Psalms lately, then you know that a lot of the Psalms are written from, a, from the perspective of somebody who's struggling. And, and it might help you sometime when you're reading the Psalms to you know, look at that superscript, that introduction. It wasn't a part of the original text, but added by, usually added by some reliable scribes at some point. It tells you, if, if it knows, it tells you a little bit of the context of the writing. And so some of those were written during the time when David was hiding in caves and he was running from Saul. We're going to be in a cave tonight. This, this, is, this is 1 Samuel 24, he's in a cave, or at least the first part of it. And so when you read those Psalms, you, you get the perspective, you get to read the perspective of someone who's like, why are you letting this happen? I don't understand. I wish you would do something. I wish that you would, these enemies who hate you, who don't do anything for your cause, and yet they're winning. I don't understand, David says. And this is, this is one of those cave moments for David tonight. But it's an interesting one because, you know, just something very normal, very, very everyday-ish happens in our story tonight. And uh, David has to make a pretty serious choice. Saul, the king, is chasing him. And if you were here last week, you may remember this. If you weren't, let me just set it up for you just a little bit because David's on the run. Saul knows that David's the next king. He knows that. Uh, he's rebellious against God. He's not listening to God. And uh, so he wants David dead. You know, he wants to kill him because he knows he's the next heir. Those are going to take the kingdom away from Saul line, which would be his son, Jonathan. So he's trying to kill David. He's chasing him, chasing him. In chapter 23, they're, they're, they're circling this mountain. You can envision this. You know, David's on one side of the mountain. Saul's on the other side. And they're He's chasing him. He's about to catch up to him. In fact, it says, you know, he's, he's bearing in on him. He's, he's honing in on David. And somebody runs up and they say, King Saul, the Philistines are attacking. 
And so Saul has to stop what he's doing right before he gets to David. And he has to go back home and deal with this threat. And then the chapter ends. We don't know what happens with the Philistine. We don't know how long it took Saul to subdue them or to deal with the threat. We don't, we don't know. We don't know at all. Presumably, Saul won. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come back with 3,000 strong troops, you know, at, at, at the first part of this chapter. But that's what we, that's what we have. So, uh, David, is, David is struggling. He's on the run, and yet he keeps seeking the will of God. He's trying to do what God wants him to do. And, uh, and God delivers him. But he hasn't delivered him completely yet. I mean, it's just he's still on the run. So let's look at chapter 24 then. If you're there, I want to approach this in three paragraphs. In, in my Bible, they're designated verses 1 through 7 and 8 through 15 and then 16 through the end of the chapter. So that's the way we're going to count it down. It breaks down into three different segments of the story. And we'll approach it that way. So the first part of this, a very human thing, uh, saw... Well, let's just read. First Samuel 24, verse 1. When, uh, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, you know, he left to go take care of that threat. He was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now we're going to continue on in a minute. Let's stop there for for a couple minutes. You, it's interesting, and this is a Bible story, you know, it's just, just interesting that, that it's here, I guess. The, David's hiding, he's hiding, and a good place to hide is in, in these caves, there are a number of them, there's, apparently from descriptions of this area, You've got this area in Gedi, this like shale, and you've got these caves that are numerous, lots of them there. And it's only, there's a cave at, like at the top of this mountainish area, this from the wild goat's rocks. So David has chosen to hide back there, but but we don't know that yet. I mean, if we're just reading this story, we we don't know that. We're reading along, and and uh, da- Saul's hunting for David. He's got three thousand chosen men. Do you remember anybody? Remember how many David's got? 600. And so look, what, look what it says. Saul has 3,000 chosen men. Think about that in contrast to David's 600. Were they chosen men? They were misfits. They were ragtags. They were, they were not chosen. They were the... Yeah, it was, it was kind of like the militia. Yeah, they were just... You know, here, here's you a, a stick, all right? You know, do what you can with it. It was, it was that kind of group. So, it's not just a five to one ratio. Saul's got the best troops. He's got five times as many as David, and David's aren't really trained for this sort of thing. So, odds are stacked against him. 
Verse 3, came to the sheepfolds by the way, and there was a cave, and he went in to relieve himself. Literally, it says he went into, and you, your Bible may translate it like this, went in to cover his feet. So all sorts of euphemisms for this sort of thing, right? We, we talk about, you know, going to the bathroom. You know, it's just, this is a, the way the Bible describes it here. Um, cover his feet means, you know, he drops his robe. So he's going to the bathroom, as we would say. Uh, ESV puts it um, to relieve himself so you know Sometimes you translate idioms, sometimes you don't. Cover his feet doesn't mean anything for us. And so it goes ahead and tells us what's going on here. You know, you had to do this outside the camp. Saw all his concerns. It's interesting how he chooses to observe some parts of the law and not other parts of the law, like we don't, we really shouldn't murder people, which he's about to do. But he goes outside of the camp, which you needed to do according to the law. It had specific laws about going to the bathroom and you go outside the camp. So he, you know, he, he thinks this is a great plan. I mean, you go into the cave, you got some privacy there. You got 3,000 troops outside. What could go wrong? You're very, very well protected and you're in private. So we don't know, if you're just reading this the first time, you don't know what's happening. You just know Saul's hunting for David and Saul takes a break, goes inside this cave and he is taking care of Himself and verse 4, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And so that's an interesting little twist, isn't it? So, what's happened here? Saul is the 3,000 men outside, and he's in there by himself, and David and his 600 must have been a pretty good sized cave. David and his 600 men are in there being very quiet, hoping that the army will just pass by. And then Saul walks in there. And then you can imagine what it must have been like, murmuring, quiet murmuring going on among David and his troops when Saul comes in, and then they realize what's going on. Well, you can imagine what 600 of these folks said. <laughs> I mean, we, we've, got a, we've got an account of what they said. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, this is not... I don't know where this comes from. You know, there, it sounds like something God would say, and it doesn't. But it's not, as far as we know. At least not like this. They, they say, this is the day. Here's the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. I mean, they're like, David, on a platter. You know, what else do you want? His... his 3,000 men are out there. Here he is by himself. He's vulnerable. This is the will of God. This is the providence of God. God has brought him in here at this particular moment so you can do what you need to do. Threats gone. Kingdom's yours. We can stop running. Skipping ahead just for a second to the end of the paragraph, verse 7. It says David persuaded his men with these words. Uh, one commentator I was reading suggested that that is a pitiful translation. Or any translation you got. I'm not sure what the others have there, but I don't think any translation translates it well. According to this particular scholar, he says the word is really, really strong. In fact, it's a violent word that says that ought to be translated something like, so David tore into his men with these words. Suggesting what we suspect. You got 600 outcasts 
who didn't fit into polite society. They're rough around the edges. Been, they've been running, hungry, thirsty, tired. You got this tyrant who's chasing them. He's right there in front of them with his robe off, completely vulnerable. What do you think they're saying? <clears throat> David tore into them with these words. This was not something that these guys, I mean, we, we think of David, maybe we think of him, you know, he's this great king and everybody just bows at his feet and does whatever he says. This is not that David. David is a, I mean, he's, he's respected, they're following him, but he doesn't have the throne. He's not the king. He doesn't have the authority. So you got these 600 men that, that didn't just say, oh, oh, okay, yeah, 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 sure, sure. That's, that's good. No, it wasn't that. They had some sort of almost, a, a, I mean, the, the language suggests, according to this one scholar, that this was almost like a violent confrontation between David and his men. And David had, he, he barely was able to keep them from killing Saul. That's, the, that's suggested by the language. Which makes sense. I mean, you can imagine. 600 men, after going through what they've gone through, they don't have the same kind of scruples David has. I, mean, I don't have any indication, based on what we know of them, that they had a kind of respect for, for the law that David did. And so you can imagine what this was like. So, you know, they said, they knew what would appeal to David, and, and they, they threw the Lord's name in there. They threw the Lord's name in there and said, this is the will of God. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That is something that the Bible uses this language. In fact, somebody wants to, well, it's in chapter 15. Then write down the verse. Yeah, it's in 1 Samuel 15. Listen to this. This is back when Saul, kind of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back moment, when he disobeyed God with reference to Agag uh, and the Amalekites. And he had already messed up earlier, you know, and God had said, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. But, but this was, was kind of like the last straw. So 1 Samuel 15, 27, Samuel is... Con Running Saul, and he's basically saying, all right, that's it. You know, the kingdom is not going to be yours. So 1 Samuel 15, 27 says, and As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret, and so on. So you know, what's going on with that? Samuel says to Saul, he takes, and he takes this robe and he tears it. He says, that's what, what's happening to the kingdom. It's being torn away from you. So I don't know, Bible didn't tell us what's going on in David's mind. David sees this great symbolism in this act. My guess is he did, but I don't know that. But as a reader of the text, I don't think these things happen by accident, nor are they recorded for us by accident. When you see these parallels, I think we're meant to read something into them. And this is one of those where I think when David stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, that it was a symbolic act that signified what David knew and what Saul knew. And he's going to show it to him in just a second. You know? So anyway, that goes back to 1 Samuel 15, taking the kingdom away from Saul. Uh, David could have done worse. But as soon as he did, it's interesting, isn't it? 
And I think this suggests that maybe David did recognize the symbolic significance of cutting the robe. Because as soon as he did it, what happened? you, you got to love this about David. <laughs> he's like, his, his conscience bothered him. Like, how could I have done that? And the rest of his men were back there saying, how could you have not cut off his head? You cut off a corner of his robe and you're feeling guilty about that? Give me a break. But David is upset. His heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I think he probably thought that's presumptuous of him to do. It's disrespectful of him to do. It's not his role to do this. God can take the kingdom away from him whenever he chooses. It's not up to David to make Saul look bad. That's my guess based on what we know of David. But he cuts off a corner of the robe and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men, or tore into his men with these words, and didn't permit them to anoint Saul. And Saul got up and left the cave, went on his way. So that's the first scene in the story of 1 Samuel 24, and it's an interesting one. And there are different places you could go with that, thinking about, thinking about the, you know, the rightness or wrongness of the act or what David could have done. Um, you can think about this from the idea of, um, of well, what's the, I had a way of phrasing this that, that, uh, that was helpful. This is, what, how do you, how do you discern, this is not it, but, but, how do you discern when providence, providence and license, those were the two words, providence and license. Providence, what you recognize, what you believe to be the providence of God does not necessarily result in your having the license to do whatever you want to do. The, David's men were arguing, look, God wouldn't have done this if he didn't want you to do what we think you ought to do, and they just kill him. God wouldn't have led him into the cave if he didn't want you to act. David, I mean, we're kind of reading between the lines putting this together, but David's angle on this is, well, no, just because God providentially led him in here doesn't mean that God is then just saying, I can do whatever I want to his anointing. Maybe this is a test, and David perceived it that way, a test of my faithfulness to him and to the covenant and to the Lord's anointed. Because the way the Lord's anointed was viewed in ancient times was the Lord's anointed was a representative of the Lord himself. And when he says the Lord's anointed, uh, some translations are going to translate it Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God. This is the YHWH. This is Yahweh. This is, uh, this is that I am that I am of Exodus 3. This is the, that special name for God. The Lord, Yahweh's anointed. He was a representative of God. And David, his attitude was just because God led him in here doesn't take away from what I know to be the right thing. And that is, I do not draw my hand back against God. His anointed, which is the representative of God. What I do to him, I'm doing to God. And I think that's why he... He felt bad about even cutting the corner of the road. But how could I have done that to the Lord's anointing? 
This narrative is told like most Old Testament narratives. It doesn't tell us right or wrong. It just tells a story. And we, we have to try to figure out sometimes what's, what's right and what's wrong. And there's some speculation that's involved. I don't know how you feel about it. I think you could make an argument that it would have been okay for David to kill Saul, right? I mean, you could at least make the argument. That mean it would be right. But it would have some somewhat convincing parts of it. I mean, Saul's going to kill David. God's already told, he's already revealed the fact that David's going to be the next king. Saul's not doing, he's just murdered a bunch of people. You know, he's just murdered, what, 200-something people a couple of chapters ago. What does the Bible say? Murders, happens to murderers, they'd be put to death. So, I mean, you could, we could reason, David could reason here, well, I'm just being the instrument of God's vengeance and acting out what deserves, what Saul deserves anyway, he needs to be put to death, and I can act for God on that, on that score. But David doesn't reason that way. David's not going to draw a sword against the Lord's anointed. Uh, vengeance, of course, this would be written 2,000 years later. No, not that long. 1,000 years later. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That principle's always been true. Vengeance is not ours to take, and David would not have been right, from his perspective, and I think he's right on this, David would not have been right to, to execute God's vengeance at this time. That would be up to God, and God would do it, as if you know how this story ends, First Samuel, the last chapter. Anyway, interesting, isn't it? So, you know, they got the next, the next movement here in uh, verses 8 through, through 15. What happens next? Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. Don't you love this? I mean, this is the way this is a neat story. He called out, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm, seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or, re or uh, treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. That's a great speech there. And... Um, I mean, it's pretty clear what he's, what he's saying. Uh, I love David's respect here. What's the saying? Those of you who are, have military backgrounds can relate to this, I'm sure. You salute the right, not the man, not the person, right? And David, uh, David didn't have much respect for Saul as a, as a person. He couldn't have by this point because Saul had abandoned God, but he had respect for the office. And so he bowed down. Just imagine the scene. I wish we could see what this looked like, but I don't know how far David let Saul get away from the cave. He cried out, my Lord, the king. Imagine the thought that went through Saul's mind at that moment. And he turned around, and what he saw was David on his 
knees bowing down on the ground out of respect to Saul, who was trying to kill David. He was trying to kill him, you know? I just wonder what, the next paragraph we'll read just a minute, I mean, you get an idea. Saul is, he's still, there's something in him, I think, there's still some good parts to his soul, to his, to his heart. He at least feels some regret at this time. It doesn't last, unfortunately, but, but he does feel something. So, and David gives this speech, and uh, verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? That's what one person I was reading on this or, you know, said something like, This is David uh, speaking respectfully and engaging in a little bit of deflection because who's the one who had convinced Saul to seek David's harm? Do you remember anybody? No, there's nobody. Saul himself is the one who wanted David dead. And Jonathan had tried to persuade him not to. And so when David says, assuming David knew this, he said, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? We don't have any record of people saying that. But David doesn't want to flat. He's just speaking as we sometimes do. He's wanting Saul to be able to save some face here. He's not, he's not saying, why, why have you come up with this idea to seek my harm? You know, he deflects a little bit. And then he goes on and he says, you know, the Lord led you today in my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you. Those, those 600 guys, they were telling him to kill him. But I spared you. I will not put out my hand against the Lord for he is, uh, against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. Notice you probably noticed this anyway, but uh, notice the lowercase, Lord, and then the uppercase, all caps, Lord's anointed. So against my Lord, that's like Sir, Master, versus He is the Lord, that's Yahweh's anointed at the end of verse 10. So he holds up the corner of the robe and he says, look, you know, look at this. Again, you think chills went down Saul's back at that moment? When he's putting all this together, putting all the pieces together and realizing, oh, when did he do that? Oh, no. How in the world? I cut off the corner of the robe, didn't kill you. I don't know if Saul remembered that first Samuel 15 moment when Samuel tore the robe and said, taking the kingdom away from you. And now he's, he's reflecting on the fact that the one David has cut off the corner of the robe, maybe completing that, that story about the tearing of the robe, tearing of the kingdom, all, all that stuff. I'm sure he's putting some of this together. And when he, hears, when he hears what David says. David goes in, and these are pretty strong words here. May the Lord judge between me and you. In other words, God's going to judge. He's going to avenge me, but he's not going to do it through me. I'm not going to do it. You, you're going to get it. You're going to get what's coming to you, but it's not going to come from me. I'm not going to do it. God's, God's going to act in some other kind of way. He's not going to do it through me, because I'm not going to lift my head against you. I'm just not going to do it. So it's a, it's a pretty neat Pretty, uh, pretty neat thing. Okay. When, um, when he says that in verse 11, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And then he gives the, may the Lord judge between me and you. Quotes this ancient proverb, out of the wicked comes wickedness. 
probably could have meant that in a couple of ways. One, I am, I'm not going to do something wicked because that's not who I am. But it also could have been applied to Saul. Don't you understand? The wicked things you're doing are coming because, are happening because you yourself are wicked. Okay. Any, you know, you're coming after a dog, a dead dog, after a flea. So may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between us. Okay. Let's look at the last paragraph of this, okay? Verse 16, beginning. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. At some level, do you feel a little bit sorry for Saul? He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut out, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right. David, uh, Saul is an interesting study, isn't he? Study and contradictions in some ways. Throughout his life, which is coming to an end in the next few chapters, he's, he's had moments where you, you think there's, there's good there, and I think there was some good there. The beginning of his king, his reign as king, he did some good things, seemed to be seeking the will of God. There are moments where you, you feel like he has some remorse, and he has some desire to do the will of God. This is one of those moments where... I can't think of any reason why he would say this if he didn't feel regret. Uh, I don't know if his men could hear him while he said this. I don't, you know, I'd like to know how far he got. If he, was he in, pre, in the presence of his men? Would he have said what he said in the presence of his 3,000 best men? I don't know if he would have or not. Because what he says here basically is, I know you're the next king. How that would have affected the 3,000 guys he's got him out there in the wilderness with him, you know. I don't know if they could hear him or not. Maybe this was separate from them. But anyway, he acknowledges everything David said, basically. You're more righteous than I. Uh, you've done good to me. I've, I've repaid you evil. And this is why, based on what we know of Saul, I can't imagine him saying all these things in front of the people. He was always influenced by the people. What they thought. You see that earlier in his life. Very concerned about what the people said. So I'm, I'm tempted to, to suggest to you that I think that this probably was something that he said, not where the others could hear him. But um, he said, he acknowledged everything. You didn't kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. If a man finds his enemy, you know, and so on. You're going to be king. And then he makes this appeal, which talked about this earlier, but this is very important to Saul. And I really think this is why he's hunting Saul. He's hunting David, is that... He did not want, number one, he didn't want the king to be taken away from him. But I think he's come to the conclusion that it's going to be taken away from him. Now, his concern is his family and his name 
It's just a big deal. It's legacy. That's right. Don't. You know what the custom was. We talked about it. In the ancient world, ancient Near Eastern world, what you would do when you became king is, you know, if you're taking over from, especially for another line, you're establishing a new line. Sometimes you'd do it even when you're continuing in the line that you were in. Like you'd kill all the brothers, all your brothers and their kids in order to stamp out any rival claims. But certainly when the line is changing from one family to another, what traditionally would be done is David would have killed uh, Jonathan, all of his siblings, all of their grandkids, just annihilate the line. So it's a stump. It's just cut off at that point. So nobody at any point could say, Saul's my great-grandfather, I have a right to the throne. Saul's my grandfather, I have a right to the throne. He just cut him off. And David acts in some violent ways. They remember 2 Samuel, he does some pretty violent things. And his sons do some pretty violent things when they're trying to, you know, Solomon and, and that whole transition. But, but anyway, it's just customary. So, so what Saul is asking for is don't do that. Jonathan's already asked for this. David's already made this promise that he's not going to do this. This is not, it's not David's thing. He's not going to do that. And so he makes the promise to Saul, I'm not going to do that. I won't cut off your family. In fact, David... Not only does he not cut them off, you may remember the story. It's an interesting story. You may go read it. But uh, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. <laughs> yeah, that's a good name. Mephibosheth. I mean, at the end of the story, you, you, you already know that Saul and Jonathan both die. You know, last chapter for Samuel. If you didn't know that, I hate to ruin the story for you. But yeah, that's what happens. And instead of cutting off the line, David finds Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who had been rendered disabled as a child when his nurse was carrying him and she fell and, and Mephibosheth was, uh, was disabled. Anyway, and David says, basically what David said was, is there anybody from Jonathan's family that I may show grace to, that I may show faith? And so he brings Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, into the palace. And Mephibosheth is invited to sit at the king's table and he takes care of him, feeds him. So it just gives you an idea. Saul asks for, don't cut them off. David said, I'll do that in his actions. So I'll, I'll go a step farther. I'll show favor to your grandson, Mephibosheth. That's what he ends up doing. So it's pretty, it pretty neat how David Response. David's got all sorts of flaws, as you know. And uh, things happen in his reign, other than you know, Bathsheba, other than numbering the people, which are the two big things. There are other things, other moments in his kingdom that aren't what they ought to be. But I think why David is called, earlier had been called, a man after God's own heart, is he consistently sought the will of God. He did so imperfectly. He did so sometimes in some frustratingly awful ways. <laughs> Bathsheba, that whole sordid story is just terrible on so many levels. But you look at David's life, and then you read on second, read Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and that is why David is like the he's like the benchmark from here on. Many of the future kings, it'll say something like, "He did not walk in the ways of David his father," or "He walked in the ways of David his father." 
something like that. David will become the standard. Uh, but I think, as we've said, as I've said to you uh, many times before, there's a sense in which all of this is pointing to the coming king. David, even David, the great king, the greatest king, the one by whom all future kings will be measured, is a flawed king. And he cannot provide the leadership that God's people need. Not ultimately, not completely. That's remaining for one who is coming. And so there's always a sense when these stories are told, there's always a sense of incompleteness. The story hasn't yet reached its zenith. That's coming to another son of David. You know? And then Jesus would, of course, be called the son of David. And the Bible uses that kind of language. He sits on David's throne, and he's, uh, he's the Lord's Messiah. That's what Jesus Christ means, Jesus Messiah. He's the Jesus, the anointed one. So all sorts of tie-ins there. But this has its fulfillment in Jesus, who's going to be the king that Judah needed but never had, even, even with David throughout. Well, about this uh, minute or so, anybody have uh, something you want to throw in here at the end? Something you've been thinking about? Well, I appreciate your good attention. I'm enjoying teaching the class, and we will move on. I hope you have time to read ahead. We'll look at chapter 25 next Wednesday, all right? So you don't have to come back, do you? You already know how the story ends. <laughs>